You ever been walking through the Navy Exchange and wonder why all the Naval Pride and Heritage gear is horrifically ugly and you wouldn't actually wear it? Have you ever wanted some really cool gear and you just don't know where to go? Well, I got you, fam. Go to dgutsapparel.com immediately. Get yourself some Naval Pride and Heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. Uh, we're working on new designs all the time, open to ideas. We're trying to create a brand that uh, lets you display that pride, but doesn't make you cringe. Uh, also, if you're willing to and you're able to, please go to patreon.com slash podcast, pick one of the five tiers and become a patron today. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Don't Give Up the Ship podcast. We're back with foundations, baby. Finally. Uh, unfortunately, it's me doing it, but <laughs> I was hoping I'd get uh, Chief now, I think Lieutenant Andrew, Ensign Andrew, I'm not sure. Or somebody like that, some somebody that's better at academic presentations than I am. But no dice, so you're stuck with me. Um, but I happen to be uh, an undergraduate student for psychology, so not that that's anything meaningful. But like I'm, I'm doing the academic thing right now. So there's a lot of I'm learning a lot of stuff that's applicable to leadership that I think is really interesting. The re- one of the reasons uh, that I'm I'm pursuing psychology is uh, as I did research on leadership development. like as I'd get into those books, more and more of it was referencing psychology, like major um, psychologist books, papers, theories, stuff like that in relation to leadership. So I'm like, oh, man. So I started ordering like them. I started with Maslow stuff, which you've heard me talk about a ton on the podcast. And then it just evolved into more and more things. And then also through my therapy, uh, psychology, the psychologist I had told me he thought I'd be good at it. Talked to me about industrial occupational psychology, which is basically leadership psychology. Um, and then it, and on and on it went. And so now I'm pursuing a degree. Uh, I, I plan on getting a PhD in psychology, but, uh, I do want to put ahead of everything, right? Like right now I am not an expert in this, right? I am studying it, but I, I haven't even finished my bachelor's degree. It'll be done like next year, but and I am pursuing a PhD eventually, like, but that's going to be probably, I think it, it'll be like with the internship and stuff, it might, it'll, it might be like six years. Um, but I'm not an expert. I'm just interested in it. So, and this is not obviously mental health advice. I put disclaimers on all the episodes, but just again, you know, like I, I'm not a mental health expert. I'm not really like most of this isn't mental health related. I don't think any of it is honestly. But it is very useful information, which is why I want to share it with you, which is why I decided to do the episode on memory, um, which seems kind of like what? Like, (laughs) why? Why memory? Like, how is that related to leadership development? Well, here I'm going to get into how uh, in detail. But really, it's like the first thing that struck me as I was studying just because of my context was like, I can low key give you a superpower for advancement exams for like studying and preparing for advancement exams. So that was like the first realization when and when I get into some of these like strategies after I go through some of the concepts, you'll understand what I mean. But also like or even like just ability to recall and remember things about your people. Right. I just talked about that on the I just recorded that other professional and character development McPon thing. Right. So like getting to intimately know your people, like being able to, to like deeply encode memory and then recall it when needed is very important for doing that. It's very important for lots and lots of other things, right? Like quals, um, like just regular management and leadership activities on a day on a daily basis. Like memory is incredibly important. And there's some really great stuff that like, I wish I would have known. I like, again, I fancy myself like a pretty good leader during my naval career. But like, if I had known this stuff, like back when, like, let's say I was a first class man, like it would have just, I like it would have compounded my ability in a lot of awesome ways. So like you'll see what I mean as we get into it. But memory is a commonly misunderstood concept. uh, And even I just learned a bunch of incredible things like I just mentioned that would have benefited me during my career if I had known them sooner. Um, And then I I mentioned it already. But before we begin, I want to reiterate, I am not an expert. I'm just studying psychology at a major university. Um, Even though it's the goal to become an expert, I'm not yet. And uh but I just completed a, a class on cognition, which is where a lot of this memory stuff came from. And I knew it was really valuable and I wanted to share all of that with you all. So uh, as far as references go, I want to let you guys know that the textbook is called Cognition. Here I, got, I actually got it right here. I bought a copy because I'm a nerd. It looks like this. You can get it on Amazon uh, as an ebook uh, or as an actual physical copy. 
Whoa, got blurry there. What's going on, camera? There we go. We're back. That's because I went to get the book. Um, it I, I referenced everything out of the book. However, the book does a really great job of referencing like the scientific papers or whatever reference they used to get uh, to write the book. Right. So there is a just in there's like a hundred references for this. Like I pulled all those out of the back of the book and pasted them onto the outline. So if you really want to dork out, there's an enormous references page on the outline, which will be on the website when I, I'll upload this and then I'll put that on, uh, under the uh, resources section of the website. So if you want to like source any of those, you can, <laughs> they're all there. Um, but it all, everything I'm going to talk about came out of this textbook and that's when I do these topics, which won't be all of the foundations episodes I do, but a lot of them I think are going to come from the psychology stuff I'm studying just because it's a lot of it's so valuable and very closely related to leadership development. Um, and it can provide a lot of useful tools and understanding. So it'll come from a textbook and then I'll do my best to provide those resources. Had I known there was going to be like a hundred, I probably wouldn't have done what I did where they're like listed them all individually, but I would have just told you they're in the book, but I got partway in and then realized how what I had signed myself up for. So I just finished it. Um, but anyway, let's get into this. Um, and, and I'm going to plug it at the beginning because I always forget to. If you want to ask any questions, uh, want me to elaborate further, want to discuss it, want to tell me I'm dumb, uh, <laughs> you can just email us. Don't give up your pockets at gmail.com. I'll cover that all at the end, too. But all right. What is memory? All right. So we're going to get into like the idea of it and then the different categories of it and then get into some like nuts and bolts like details. So uh, if you pose this question to most people, they would answer short and long term memory um, and provide a general description of both, like functionally and like a general level. Uh, and I was the same way. Like I went into this class thinking that was real. Uh, well, fun fact, that's not only incorrect, <laughs> it's not even the half of it. So <laughs> long term memory is the part that's like half right sort of uh we do have long-term memory it's real long-term memory is defined as the high capacity storage system that contains your memories for experiences and information that you have accumulated through your throughout your lifetime information in long-term memory can last for a few minutes to many decades uh, and that's from the book so um but it's not like it's not quite as simple as like cold storage, like just like a hard drive, right? A lot of people in psychology like to uh, relate the brain function, like brain function, like neurological function to a computer. Uh, I passionately disagree, but I'm not going to go down that rabbit hole. Focus. Got a lot of caffeine in me right now, if you can't tell. Um, there, it, when you break it down, there's different types of long-term memory. And that's when I was like, you don't even know the half of it. Like, like this is what I mean. So there's different types of long-term memory, and I'm going to explain all those right now. All right. So the first type of long term memory is called episodic. So like an episode, episodic, the definition of episodic memory. And when I say these things, I'll try to this is a quote from the book. So I'll let you know, like this is from the book. Uh, episodic memory focuses on your memories for events that happen to you personally. Uh, it allows you to travel backward in subjective time to reminisce about earlier episodes in your life. Uh, episodic memory includes your memory for an event that occurred 10 years ago, as well as a conversation you had 10 minutes ago. Okay. And that's the quote from the book. Uh, so it's like personal experiences and their, their memories that you can kind of like within, within the narrative in your mind, you can like, it's like you can rewind the tape and go back 10 minutes, 10 years, doesn't matter, but it's stuff that happened to you is episodic memory, uh, semantic memory. And this is a quote from the book. Semantic memory describes your organized knowledge about the world, including your knowledge about words and other factual information. For example, you know that the word semantic is related to the word meaning, and you know that Ottawa is the capital of Canada. That was a quote from the book. I thought that was funny because I had no idea. I would have guessed the capital of Canada was like Toronto or something. No idea that the capital was Ottawa. I thought it was funny that they used that. I thought that, I thought that example was kind of ridiculous. Maybe I'm just bad at geography. I don't know. But, uh, so the the semantic memory is just kind of like facts. Like I know that the stove is hot, right? Like I'm not going to touch it. I know that fire is hot, right? Uh, it's kind of like the 
the knowledge about the world functionality of objects kind of um procedural memory is next and, th and that kind of gets into some of that stuff too like how to open a door right so procedural memory this is a quote procedural memory refers to your knowledge about how to do something for instance you know how to ride a bicycle and you know how to send an email message to a friend it's unclear that procedural memory is highly meaning based Instead, it is often conceptualized in terms of sequences of motor-based information that are necessary in order to complete action components of a task, right? So it's like they kind of think this is more like a, almost like a, a subconscious thing, like where it's like motor function, like, like I don't think about turning a door handle when I open a door, I just do it, right? Um, I don't think about swallowing when I'm drinking water, like stuff like that, like it's, it's procedural, it's motor skill, uh, based and it's it's very it's a very unconscious function whether there so far in my study uh there's de kind of debate on like what it like what's unconscious function what's what's conscious function and then there's like some intermediaries that they're like sort of conscious and it's like so i'm still learning about that stuff i don't really i don't really know how to like what the consen scientific consensus is yet um but here we are. <laughs> All right. So those are the different types of long term memory. OK, so now I'm going to go into how do we make those those memories? Right. Because we're we're going to be most interested uh, sort sort of you, when we get into to, to what is actually short term memory. It, it, that's very important, too. But it it's it draws on long-term memory. It's all, it's all interwoven. It's not like we like to put things in little boxes and say, this is called this. And it's like, but functionally, that's not how it's all very interwoven and they all work together. It's all connected. <laughs> so how do we make memories? So I'm going to get into that first because it's, it's important for the understanding of long-term memory. Okay. So, well, the general explanation, uh, is there are inseparable two inseparable processes for making and using memories encoding and retrieval and i'm going to define those from the book now during encoding you process information and represent it in your memory so it's like imbibing information right it's the process of bringing that information in and i'm encoding it so i'm like think about it like creating brain wrinkles like that's the <laughs> that's the analogy i had in my head and you'll see why that's important later that's a what do they call it um descriptive or the deep processing we'll get into it um so so again during encoding you process information and represent it in your memory in a way and we'll talk about some of the ways later um the second topic of retrieval so during retrieval you locate information in storage and you access that information note however that these two process cannot can't processes cannot be separated right so if i'm encoding information when I encode it, part of the encoding is making it easy to retrieve. Otherwise, I'm not going to remember. And then is it even a memory? Like if a tree falls in the woods, right? So you can't separate those two things because one is necessary for the other. Otherwise, it's almost it's the memory doesn't exist, right? I, if I encode it, it, it by definition, it needs to be retrievable. Otherwise, I didn't did it. I didn't really properly encode it, right? So, but those are just like the steps. I encode it so that I can retrieve it. If I can't retrieve it, did I really encode it, right? Um, so those are the two like functional steps in making memories, right? Um, but the, so those statements are obviously procedural steps. What we're more interested in is what are the best ways to efficiently encode and retrieve information in your memory, right? Because I want to. I want to leverage this tool in every way that I can to make myself remember more things, right? For whatever reason, which we talked about at the beginning as far as like leadership or advancement exams or whatever, right? So we're now we're going to get into some of the ways that processing memories, it, like it'll make it stick. Like the, the, this is the way you should be doing it, right? So levels and depth of processing approach is what these are called. It's those names are interchangeable. So you could say levels of processing approach or depth of processing approach. Um, but the levels of processing approach was developed in 1972 by a couple of smart kids and basically states that encoding and recall are much more efficient when we process information in. And this, these are the key words in deep and meaningful ways. Right. Instead of shallow, mechan shallow mechanical ways to so think like flashcards. Right. Uh, there are two important characteristics that define a deep method versus shallow, right? And these are the ones I was talking about earlier. Distinctiveness and elaboration, okay? And I'm going to go into exactly what those mean, but those are the two things that should govern 
pretty much everything you do when it comes to like studying or trying to retain information about people or processes or quals or maintenance or whatever. Okay, distinctiveness and elaboration. So, quote from the book, distinctiveness means that a stimulus is different from other memory traces. For example, suppose that you're interviewing for a job. Uh, so an example of this would be, oh, sorry, I'm supposed to delete that. Pretend I didn't say the interviewing for a job part. So <laughs> I changed the example because I didn't like the example in the book. It wasn't as relevant. So an example of this would be uh, coming up with an, a unique association for something you're trying to remember, like associating a name with an object or experience. Uh, and we'll get into to mnemonics later, but mnemonics are a great mechanism like that. So a mnemonic we're all probably familiar with from like think grade school maybe maybe middle school i'm not sure i don't remember but like the roy g biv thing for remembering all the colors in the rainbow right so it's uh let's see if i can remember well i think it's red orange yellow green blue indigo violet right roy g biv right it works i i can't even remember the last time i thought about that um but that's you know that's what the like that is both uh distinct and in a way, it'll it, like it kind of elaborates on the concept of a rainbow, but it's mnemonics are very distinct. And if you memorize the mnemonic and you can remember the mnemonic when you write it down, it's distinct enough that you should be able to just look at it and be like, oh, yeah, OK, so it's obviously I know it's colors and I know the first letter. So you can then it helps you recall that information because you already have part of it from the mnemonic. Right. But we'll get into mnemonics later. So distinctiveness, um, very important when you provide a distinctive encoding for a person's name. Irrelevant names will be like less less likely to interfere, and we'll get into inf interference later too. But the distinctiveness and elaboration prevents similar memories from interfering. So a lot of times when you hear like slips of the tongue, like when people are talking and they say the wrong word, but it's a, a lot of the times, almost always, it's a very similar word. So like, um, like like as I say, instead of word, I said turd, right? Like it, it that doesn't make sense in the sentence at all, but it's close enough that I just recalled the wrong relevant-ish word because it's it's related, right? It's not relevant to the context of the sentence or what I was trying to say, but it's it's closely related to that word in how it sounds and speech processing is a whole other topic, but like it's that's why those some of those things happen, right? Is like I just it's I didn't encode it distinctly distinctively enough and there's some, a bunch of other reasons too, but um distinctiveness helps prevent that type of interference from happening with other memories, right? So you like you misremember something or you're confused because they're kind of muddled together. Um, as a result, the memory you have for the name will increase given that you've conducted mental operations that cause the memory to be different in some way from other potentially similar and similar entries in long-term memory. The second factor that operates with deep levels of processing is elaboration, which requires rich processing in terms of meaning and interconnected concepts. For example, if you want to understand the term levels of processing, so this is like directed at me, the psychology student, right? So if I want to understand this concept, uh, you'll need to appreciate how this concept is related to both distinctiveness and elaboration, right? So it's, if I'm trying to understand one concept, I need to, I need to elaborate on what it means. And then we get into some other, other things later to elaborate, to, to, to make it stick. So I'm not just, again, using a mechanical method like flashcards. I'm elaborating on that by like relating it to myself, relating it to a situation that's, I'm familiar with re relating it to something ridiculous, right? We'll get into that later. It's kind of fun. Um, but you need to elaborate in some way to make it the information distinct and make it easy to recall through that elaborative process, right? I'm, I'm like creating a context. It's like it's like leading with stories like that podcast I did like a million years ago. It's kind of like that where I, that context will help me remember uh, the thing that I'm trying to encode, right? So if you create a scenario or a picture, a real memory where a concept you're trying to encode was happening, using that elaboration should help in richly encoding that concept. Instead of basic memorization techniques like flashcards or blunt force studying a text, which I used to do all the time, discuss the ideas, how you apply them in real life, why they're important, and examples of you or someone else trying to do it either right or wrong etc. Right. So it's kind of like leading with stories, but you're just using examples, memories, right? You're you're elaborating whether it's related to you or someone else. We'll talk about why it's better if it's related to you in a minute. So, oh, actually, right now, the self-reference effect. So this is what I just mentioned. Uh, 
I just, I just alluded to in the last examples what I wrote down on my outline. Um, when you're trying to encode a new piece of information, it's highly beneficial to relate that idea to you to yourself in a distinct way, creating an elaborate construct to do so. So not just when you're using distinctiveness and elaboration, it's even better if that distinctiveness and elaboration is related to you personally in some meaningful way, because ego is a thing, right? you're going to be most concerned and be most likely to remember things related to yourself. So this just, it's like an amplifier. It relates it when you relate those things to the elaboration and distinctiveness to you, it makes things easier to remember. So like, for instance, I'm CS2 Timmy. I'm, I'm studying. I relate like the, one of the things I had a really hard time remembering was there's like CBR defense stuff for food, believe it or not in the, in our main reference. Right. And it's on the, it's on the advancement exam. So I'd be trying to study some of this stuff. It's like if I had related some of those things to, because it's talking about like uh, you have to like cook the meat and do all these things to make the food safe for human consumption if it's irradiated, blah, 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 which, you know, is it really safe? I don't know. But like that's the procedure that's in the book. But uh, what you would do to feed the crew and all. This. So it's like if I had created stories and and contexts that, that were self-referenced, I would have remembered that information a lot better. But I didn't. I was I was blunt force studying back then. I was literally page by page highlighting the instructions. So self-reference effect is a huge deal. Right. So the quote from the book, according to the self-reference effect, you will remember more information if you try to relate that information to yourself. Self-reference tasks tend to encourage especially deep processing, meaning that thing is going to get encoded deep in there. Big brain wrinkle. You recall it easily. Great success. Right. Um. Now we're going to get to encoding specificity principle. Okay, so this is a quote directly from the book as well. This is a new principle, but related to this related to the same thing. So consider the following scenario. You're in the bedroom and you realize that you need something from the kitchen. This happens to all of us all the time. Once you arrive in the kitchen, however, you have no idea why you made the trip to the kitchen in the first place. Without the context in which you encoded the item you wanted, you cannot retrieve this memory. A lot of times you go back to that context and a lot you don't even consciously realize it. You return to the bedroom, which is rich in contextual cues, which is where you first generated this, the thought of this need or this item that you need to retrieve. Uh, and you immediately remember what you wanted. That's what encoding specificity is. So Similarly, an isolated question on an exam may look completely unfamiliar, although you might remember the answer in the appropriate context. These examples illustrate the encoding specificity principle, which states that recall is better if the context during retrieval is similar to or the same uh, to the context during encoding. When the two contexts do not match, you are more likely to forget the item. So what does that mean, right? You, you, you may have heard it from studying strategists or, you know, like smart people. I don't know uh, that you want to try to study in the same uh, environment you're going to be tested in. Right. So it's not always possible. But if you can try to either replicate the feeling of that environment or actually do it in that environment, right? So like, for instance, where do you take your Navy advancement exam? Well, on a submarine at sea, we take it on the Mestex. So on a ship, I don't know, probably the Mestex. It's a big area. I don't know. I don't know where you guys, where everybody does it. But if you can study in that context, it's going to help you recall those things when you're taking the exam in that context. And we'll get into practice exams being important and stuff later. But encoding being just whatever your study habits are, which should be, all the things we just discussed, right? Like distinctiveness, elaboration, self-reference effect. But if you can do it in the context you're going to be tested in or going to be trying to recall that information for whatever reason, like applying it. Like, so for instance, leadership principles, like read a leadership book in the Chiefs Mess Chiefs, it'll help you recall that information. Well, or read it in your work center is probably a better, (laughs) probably a better analogy, but you get my point. Like try to encode those things in the same context. You're going to be trying to like recall and use that, that information or concept, right? Um, all right. Proactive interference. I mentioned this earlier. 
uh, I wanted to bring this up because this is going to be a barrier to you recalling that information. And all of those strategies leading up to this point help combat interference. But I want to make sure we delineate what that is and the type of interference that's going to give you the most trouble. Right. So proactive interference. Uh, the, re- the reason the principles we talked about are so important is because when we shallowly encode through simple repetitive memorization techniques, we encounter a concept known as pro- proactive interference. This idea is summed up as saying, when the memory is not distinctly and elaborately encoded, it's a needle in a haystack. We get sabotaged by similar adjacent information and often have trouble with recall or fail entirely. So... When it's not distinctively and elaborately encoded and we're not using tools like the self-reference effect and encoding specificity, you are and you're just like blunt force studying, using flashcards, reading the book, um, having people quiz you is actually good, which a lot of people do, but we'll get to that. The uh, it's like everything is going to intermingle. It's going to get hazy. It's going to get confusing. You're going to and then on a multiple choice exam, which is what we do in the Navy, is uniquely qualified to confuse you and leverage this proactive interference effect so that you are not sure what the answer is. Because when we and I know this because I wrote the Navy advancement exam for my rate. When we write the exam, we are going out of our way to write plausible false answers right because that's the whole point of the test it's not it's not uh diabolical it's like i want you to know the information specifically i don't want you to be able to use like process of elimination and other exam taking strategies which work if they're if we're not doing our job as test writers it's i want plausible answers that are false so a lot of times you'll see opposites Right. So I'll, I'll give you a right answer. And then the opposite of that is as one of the possible four wrong answers, because they're so similar, you're going to get proactive interference unless you studied and deeply and deeply encoded that information. Right. So that's what proactive interference is. And it affects a lot of you all on a regular basis. Taking the chief's exam, taking all the other advancement. I know we don't have any four exam anymore, I guess. So the, all the other exams. Right. It, it's it's. Proactive interference is a big problem for a lot of test takers because they don't have these study habits built around these concepts. So that was one of the big things that I wanted people to take away from this episode specifically. Um, So now we're going to get into working memory. Okay, what's working memory, you ask? Well, it's short term memory or what you know is short term memory because short term memory, not real. Okay, Uh, it's just an outdated term. Right. So. Now we're at the part uh, people fundamentally fundamentally misunderstand, but mostly on pop culture. But they understand mostly based on pop culture references and tribal knowledge. There is no such thing as short term memory. It's much more complex and interwoven with long term memory. So now this is from the book. It's a quote. Working memory is the brief, immediate memory for the limited amount of material that you are currently processing. That's important. Part of working memory is also actively or sorry, part of working memory actively coordinates your ongoing mental activities. In other words, working memory lets you keep a handful of items active and accessible so that you can use them for a wide variety of cognitive tasks and so that they can be integrated with additional incoming information. That is, working memory doesn't simply store information consistent with its name. It actively works with that information. And that's a that's an important concept is that it's act. It's an active process. Right. Short term memory isn't just a thing where information sits, because if if it was, it'd be long term memory. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So we're going to get into I'm going to break down all like how there's a lot of constructs that that comprise the concept of working memory. One of them is long term memory. Again, because they interact. I can't have working memory without long-term memory because I pull from long-term memory and then I use that stuff within my working memory and then it, you know, goes back. Or or I bring it in through sensory memory, like or, like I imbibe that information and I work with it and then when I don't need it anymore, if I don't encode it, it just goes away, right? And I forget it, which is why people kind of think short-term memory is short-term. Um, and it kind of is working memory is kind of that, but not not the way that people traditionally understand it. All right. Um, so the areas of working memory include the central executive. OK, so think like the control center, right, or the nerve center or whatever. The episodic buffer. Phonological loop or phonological loop, depending on how you want to pronounce it, and the visio spatial sketch pad. I know complicated, complicated psychology terminology. 
which all connect to and work with long time long term memory, like I just mentioned. So let's dive into a brief description of all of them. So the central executive this is a quote from the book model. The central executive integrates information from the phonological loop, the visuospatial sketch pad, the episodic buffer and long term memory. The central executive also plays a major role in focusing attention, selecting strategies, transforming information and coordinating behavior. In addition, uh, it's argued that the central executive has a wide variety of different functions, such as focusing attention and switching between tasks. So, again, think of it generally as like the nerve center, right? Uh, It's kind of governing all the other processes and coordinating everything to make sure it's working correctly. Phonological loop. So think like audio, right? Taking it in through your ears. The phonological loop can process a limited number of sounds for a short period of time. The phonological loop processes language and other sounds that you hear, as well as sounds that you make. It also it is also active during sub vocalization. For example, when you silently pronounce the words that you are reading, sub vocalization is the internal dialogue in your head, right? It's the voices in your head, right? It's like if you're sounding out words while you're reading, which sometimes happens, sometimes doesn't, uh, depending on how familiar you are with the words and a bunch of other things, but it uh, it's the silent dialogue in your head, you thinking with words, sub vocalization, right? So visio spatial sketchpad is kind of what it sounds like. It's visual. The visio spatial sketchpad, which process both visual and spatial information. This kind of working memory allows you to look at a complex scene and gather visual information about objects and landmarks. It also allows you to navigate from one location to another. That was a quote from the book as well. I didn't say that. Uh, and then episodic buffer. Uh, <clears throat> This is like our workbench for manipulating uh, memory information, both through sensory memory that I haven't encoded deeply yet, and then the long-term memory, right? So the episodic buffer serves as a temporary storehouse that can hold and combine information from your phonological loop, your visuospatial sketchpad, and long-term memory, uh, and wherever else. I, you know, like I'm bringing it in through those things. Uh, that's kind of like the sensory information. So I have that through either audio or visual, and then I have long-term memory, and I can pull from both of those to work with it on my uh, episodic buffer or workbench, right? Okay, so now that we kind of understand, and I know it's kind—I know a lot of that was complicated, and I went through it pretty quickly because I didn't want to get into too much detail because those things are just to create a construct around understanding how it all works, right? Now I'm going to get into the helpful tips and tricks, which was kind of what I wanted to get to. But like I just felt like the information was important to understanding why these work and why they're important to utilize, right? Okay, helpful tips and tricks. So why do you care? Well, we mentioned some of the general reasons earlier on how to deeply encode, but here's some helpful tips and tricks on how to apply this knowledge to help you on a regular basis, just doing your job, right? Uh, positive thoughts. This is a, this is a fun one. The po- Pollyanna, I don't know if I'm pronouncing I think it's Pollyanna principle states that pleasant items are usually processed more efficiently and more accurately than less pleasant items. This principle holds true for a wide variety of phenomena, including perception, language, and decision-making. So this means a couple of things, but like basically think about it like um, if you've been in the Navy for a while, uh, you tend to remember experiences and places uh, more fondly after you're separated that from them with time, right? So all the bad stuff kind of falls away and all the pleasant stuff remains, right? So that's why everybody tells stories about used to fish, right? Like on USS last ship, everything was perfect. You know, we did everything great. You know, that's, that's what is functioning here is the Pollyanna principle is like, I remember the pleasant things and the bad things kind of fall away. I also process pleasant information more efficiently because that's just how we're wired. Um, So that's one of the things that just kind of consider that when you're processing information as you're going to process it better if it's pleasant, which I don't know how applicable that will be to studying habits and stuff. But a lot of the other stuff, like if you're reading a doom and gloom book about leadership, like telling, oh, this is why everything sucks. And, you know, this is why my approach is better. It's like you're not going to process that as well as a positive approach, like a Simon Sinek book. Um, which, you know, whether you like it or not, is completely up to you. Um, and this doesn't just mean happy thoughts, by the way. And I forget what the name of this. I, I think I went to go look for this principle and I, I couldn't remember what it was called. But uh, this doesn't just mean happy thoughts. Um, and, and this isn't the Pollyanna principle. It's something different, but closely related. Uh 
positive information is much easier for a person to recognize. And this is more of a visual thing than negative information, but it, it, it counts for language sometimes too. a lot of its reading, which is also visual. But, you know, uh, what that means, in addition to ha- the happy thoughts idea, the Pollyanna principle, is that visually, if something is present, so it's physically present, it's much easier for us to notice than if something is missing. Right. So if I pause this video and I removed one of those combo covers and then started the video again, highly likely you wouldn't notice. Right. But if and this is one of the analogies in the book, like if I if a goat walked into the room right now, they had like they used an ape. But like if a goat walked into the room and just parked right here, you'd notice. Right. It's a lot easier to notice that than if I just change something, even though they're similar, similarly related in our heads. Right. So if something's present it's a lot easier to recognize than if something's missing. And that can apply to exam questions just like it can apply to real life, right? So just understand that that's a reality when you're processing information is that it's much easier for us to recognize when something like is added, right? Like that something is present than if something's missing. So if I have a bunch of things in here and then I take one away, you're probably not going to notice. But if I add something, it's going to be a lot easier to notice. All right. Hope that makes sense. So uh, desirable difficulties slash the testing principle. This is what I was talking about quizzes being important. The testing principle is really interesting because a lot of people don't leverage mock exams or have people like I mean, I think having people quiz you is probably more common, but taking an actual formal mock exam is very beneficial. Um, So quote from the book, one reason that distributed practice is helpful, and I'm going to talk about distributed practice next. Uh, one of the reasons distributed practice is helpful, helpful for long-term recall is that it introduces desirable difficulties. In other words, a learning situation that is somewhat difficult, but not too difficult. So professors administer tests in academic courses so that they can assess how much you have learned. Tests only serve, however, as a means by which to evaluate the amount of knowledge that a student has acquired. It turns out that being tested on material also increases memory for the material. So it helps you recall the information. Uh, This phenomenon is referred to as the testing effect. Taking a test is an excellent way to boost your long-term recall for academic material. Okay, so taking a test, and they've done studies on this, where somebody that learns the material and then takes a test and then gets tested on the material like five days later, and somebody that just studies the material a few times and doesn't get tested, recall is much better for the tester than for the the other person. Even when there's a longer gap between that person, like let's say I only study once and then I take a test and then three days later you test me again. The other person gets to study like three or four times and then one day later they take they take a they get quizzed on the information. I'm still gonna do better. Right. I think they start to close the gap, but it's I'm still doing better. Right. So there's a lot of cool scientific like testing that they did to prove this. And it's like this. It makes a difference in your ability to recall. So it it helps deeply encode the information because you were quizzed on it or tested on it. Okay, so distributed practice. This one's cool, too. This is this is why people tell you not to cram for tests. Right. Uh, And I've been testing this out myself just anecdotally as I've studied for my college courses, where instead of trying to read all the chapters in one day and do my assignment, I read a little bit every day or I'll read one chapter and take a day off and then read another chapter. And it helps. Like I'm telling you. And my 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 brain has been irradiated by proton radiation because of my cancer and all the like sleep poorly and all this other stuff. I'm telling you, this works. So distributed practice effects, quote, according to the distributed practice effect, you will remember more material if you spread your learning trials over time. It's spaced learning. You'll remember less if you try cramming by learning the material all at once or masked learning. The studies generally support this principle for both recall tasks and recognition tasks. Uh, Research also confirms the spacing effect with real life material that can be difficult to master, such as English vocabulary, math knowledge and people's names. Uh, I want to point out the... Uh, where it talks about recall tasks and recognition tasks. So a recall task would be like an essay question where they you, they just say, hey, what does this mean? And then you have to write it out. So that's a recall task. I got to pull that out of my memory, period. A recognition task is a multiple choice test where the answer's in front of me. I just got to figure out which one it is. Okay. It helps with both. So distributed practice is really important. Like you should be studying a little bit at a time spaced over time, whether it's every day, a little bit every day or some every other day or however you want to do it. Um, twice a week gapped with some days, whatever is required. Cause like it depends on how much you're trying to learn and how quickly you need to learn it and all that other stuff. But, 
Uh, it is better to study more than less generally, but then the quality of the studying matters tremendously. And that's what all these principles are about, right? Um, all right, mnemonics. Here's another fun strategy. This is one that, uh, like, the military loves acronyms for a reason. Um, some of them are completely pointless. I mean, a lot of them, really. But it helps you remember things when you use them. Uh, and the mnemonics aren't just acronym type things like Roy G. Biv. Uh, so there's uh, several types. So mnemonics, this is a quote, mnemonics are mental strategies designed to improve your memory. We discuss two types of mnemonics. So one, mnemonics using mental imagery and two, mnemonics using organization, which is like Roy G. Biv or, you know, other ones we'll get into. Uh, we'll also discuss the keyword method in association with, I think the keyword method is the Roy G. Biv style one. So an imagery mnemonic is visual imagery, this is a quote, visual imagery can be a powerful strategy for enhancing memory. The research demonstrates that imagery is especially effective when the items that must be recalled are shown interacting with each other. For example, if you want to remember a, the pair piano and toast, try to visualize a piano chewing a large piece of toast. This is a ridiculous thing that I thought would be kind of fun. In general, an interacting visual image is especially helpful if the image is bizarre, distinctive, elaborate right so that using mental imagery to make something distinctive it'll make it easier to recall who's going to forget an image of a piano eating a piece of toast or maybe a piece of toast playing the piano right it's ridiculous it's distinct and it'll help you recall the information uh especially with imagery it's just it just helps the keyword method as one example this is a quote uh, if you need to remember unfamiliar vocabulary items, the keyword method is especially helpful. In the keyword method, you identify an English word, the keyword, that sounds similar to the new word you want to learn. Then you create an image that links the keyword with the meaning of this new word. So that'd be kind. it's kind of like the mental image method, except it's with words, right? And so you use a word that you're already familiar with and then somehow link it with a mental image. Um, so you can say like bird and turd and then like a bird crapping on someone. <laughs> like... I had to, um, but you get my point. I bet you'll remember that. <laughs> and then organization mnemonics. When people use mnemonics that involve organization, they try to bring systematic order to the material they want to learn. This class of mnemonics necessitates the use of deep processing to sort the items into categories, um, which is kind of like, like chunking's related, but not exactly the same. So chunking uh, is when you combine, th these are quotes too, I'm, most of the stuff I'm reading, and it's quotes from the book, chunking in which we combine several small units into larger units is a basic organizational principle that eases the processing demands on working memory. Uh, these researchers found that people recalled much more material when a string of letters was grouped according to meaningful familiar units rather than in arbitrary groups of three, uh, such as the letter CIA, which we've all heard before, uh, instead of ACI, right? If I'm trying to remember ACI, I can just reorganize them into something familiar like CIA. And that's something that I can remember much easier because it has more elaboration in my mind and more distinctiveness in my mind. It's already encoded, right? It's kind of like the word one too, where you're linking it to a similar word. Very, very similar procedurally. Uh, a hierarchy system uh, or a hierarchy is a system in which items are arranged in a series of classes from the most general class to the most specific. An example would be a line diagram or alphanumeric outline where you organize your items into categories, much like the outline I'm using right now. Uh, you can download it again in the resources section of the website. Uh, the first letter technique. This is the one that's Roy G. Biv. I, I forgot there were so many of these damn things. <laughs> so the first letter technique, you take the letter of each word you want to remember, and then you compose a word or a sentence from those letters. Maybe you learned the orders of colors of the rainbow using Roy G. Biv, as we talked about earlier, to recall red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, and violet. As you may have learned in a statistics class, the nominal, ordinal, interval, and ratio scales conveniently spell noir, or N-O-I-R, the French word for black. So that's a way that you can remember that, right? So you can you can make words real or fake. Like Roy G. Biv's not, I mean, Roy's, I guess, a name, but like Roy G. Biv's not a word, but it's a thing I bet you every grade school student has encoded in their brain. Uh, so there, that's mnemonics. Those are very useful concepts for recalling information. And I think you can apply every single one of those to Navy advancement exams. All right, throat's getting a little scratchy. Doing two in a row today. All right, in a divided attention, this one's crazy because everybody thinks they can multitasks, 
multi multitask, especially in the age of cell phones. Put your phone away, shut it off, put it in airplane mode, whatever you got to do. You cannot multitask effectively, right? You can multitask, but when you divide your attention, you're doing both things suboptimally. So if you want to encode information deeply in order to recall it later in important moments like an advancement exam or a board or whatever, you do not divide your attention. Focus only on the studying modality, right? So from the book, in a divided attention task, you try to pay attention to two or more simultaneous messages responding appropriately to each message. When people are multitasking, they strain the limits of attention as well as the limits of their working memory and long-term memory. Recent research focuses on people who use their cell phones while they are also engaged in another cognitive task. For example, college students walk more slowly when they are talking on their cell phones. Furthermore, the research shows college students read their textbooks significantly more slowly when they are responding to instant messages. According to the research, students also earn lower grades when they are tested on material they they had been reading while multitasking. There you go. They may believe they can multitask, but the research does not support this illusion. However... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say don't do something, and then I'm going to say you can do something. And it's going to seem slightly contradictive, but it's not. So don't listen to music with words while studying, because processing words is a cognitive task that, that takes away from the, the bandwidth of your working memory, all of which you need to deeply encode the information you're trying to, to encode, right? However, it's actually shown to help when you listen to like white noise or instrumental music with no words. And and the only caveat would be is if for some reason some of those brought some, like if it was an instrumental for a song that has words, but it doesn't have the words over it, you're going to be thinking about the words. So don't do that. But if you just listen to strictly instrumental music or like I use white noise a lot because I have all the issues that make it hard for me to focus. Um, and recall information and stuff. So white noise helps me focus. Like anything will distract me. So if I put on headphones and I play white noise, like I usually do thunderstorms, it helps me focus when I'm reading for school. So uh, that is actually shown to uh, help because it it takes away your phonological loop inputs and just gives me this background white noise. And you just like it just goes. It kind of melts away. Like I don't even notice it. And so, but it, it takes away the ability for me to have any distraction from my processing of what I'm reading. I hope that makes sense. But a lot of people like to listen to music while they study too. And it's, you might as well be on your phone, right? So don't music with words are bad because it's a phonological input that's going to distract you from processing the information that you want to retain. Okay, we made it. We're at the end. Uh, so we talked about all the things. We talked about long-term memory, talked about working memory, talked about a lot of strategies for processing information deeply. But it really, what I really want you to take away from this is that you've probably been doing it wrong. And that's the reason why you struggle on Navy advancement exams. It's the reason why you have trouble retaining other, other information. Like it's very difficult to qualify submarines, right? It's very difficult to get your fish. It's very difficult to qualify lots of things. I bet you uh, at woe on a ship or like, I don't know, like whatever else you guys qualify. I'm sure it's difficult. It can be less difficult. It's still going to be a challenge, right? But you can do it a lot more efficiently if you leverage all these techniques uh, like mnemonics, like uh, understanding divided attention, like the um, self-reference effect, right? Like because if you're especially like you're working on a qual and you've done a lot of this stuff before or seen it and you were there, you can self-reference a lot of those things you're reading in the book instead of just trying to flashcard your way through life because it doesn't work nearly as well. Um, so... I really hope this was helpful. I was really excited to share all this information because I think it can be. I think it can be very, very useful for the advancement exams, of course, right? But also for like quals and stuff and for leadership, right? Like for the people, not like functionally on a day-to-day basis, your your memory and especially your working memory is strained. You're pulled in a ton of different directions. Your attention's divided. Like it, everything is putting strains on your working memory, right? And one of the analogies in this class that uh, the professor gave was like, think of your your working memory like a vessel, right? Like, so I got my little kombucha here, right? So this is like my working memory, this Dr. Brew bottle. Every cognitive task, every they call it cognitive load. Every 
load that I add to my working memory, you start to reach capacity, right? And eventually it's going to overflow. Eventually you're just going to be so like overwhelmed that you're not going to be able to do any of the things you're trying to do effectively and stuff's going to start to go wrong, right? But if you think about it as well for processing information, right? So like if you're on your phone or you're listening to music with words, like you're taking a chunk out of your working memory with the cognitive load that is is put in place by you processing the words through your phonological loop of that music. It distracts you, right? It takes away a chunk of that working memory so that you're not going to encode deeply and elaborately like you like you need to. You're not going to be able to recall that information. Um, so I really I hope these principles were helpful, informative, uh, share them with your people, share the podcast, share this will be on YouTube, all the things. Right. Um, and let me know. I hope I hope the stuff's useful. Hit us up and let me know. I'm, I'm excited for feedback, particularly on the foundations style episodes. This is not my forte. So like, let me know if it sucked. <laughs> like, hit me up. Don't give up the shit podcast at gmail.com. You can Facebook message us. Don't give up the shit podcast. You can DM me on Instagram, Reddit, or Discord at DGUTS Podcast. Uh, if you want to support us, DGUTSPodcast.com, upper right-hand corner of the website, there's a donate button. Uh, you can go to Don't Give Up the Ship Apparel. That's DGUTSApparel.com. Get yourself some naval pride and heritage gear you'll actually wear in public. Uh, or you can go to patreon.com slash Gigas podcast, pick one of the five tiers, become a member today. That would be tremendous. Lots of bills, lots of things to do. And we want to expand the platform and make it better for you. And then uh, if you can't afford to spend any money, totally understand. Uh, you can support us by like, liking, subscribing, reviewing on all the platforms for all the things for podcasts. You can review us. You can share the podcast. You can tag your friends in social media posts. You can share the social media posts. Like or follow us on those things. Subscribe on YouTube. Share the videos. All, all Anything you can do to interact with any of those platforms uh, and share the content or, or like, um, you know leverage the algorithms you guys probably know more about it than i do but uh it all helps and then just listening of course also helps as well we really appreciate it and that's it that's what i got for you today thank you so much for listening and don't give up the ship hey shout out to all our level five patrons victoria Livingood, william mciver and mark galagos to all our other patrons we really appreciate your support helps to pay all the bills expand the platform and we couldn't do it without you thank you so much